But friends, I'd ask you to turn in your copies of God's Word to the book of James, to the letter of James in the New Testament, as we begin our second uh, New Testament book together as a church here since uh, the time that the Lord has allowed me to come and has given me grace to, to be the pastor here. I pray that He'd give me a lot more grace to continue that work and to and, and for many, uh, many years, I pray. Um, that song that we just sang contains in it so many incredibly powerful truths. At one point it says, Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. You know, there's actually a denomination in this country that requested, that requested the authors of that song, the Gettys, Keith and Kristen Getty, they requested to be able to change those words. To, to kind of fit what they believed, to put it in their own hymnal the way that they wanted it. They asked to change the words, till on that cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted to change it to the love of God was magnified. They didn't want to talk about wrath, about God's holy wrath against sin being satisfied on our behalf. Well, friends, that's exactly what God did in the gospel. God, because he's righteous, because he hates sin, sin has to be punished. Our God is not a God who's just going to sweep things under the rug, but God is so good, even though he's wrathful, right? This is not a popular thing to say. Because he's holy, he can't stand the presence of sin. But because he's so good and loving, he created a way for us to escape that wrath through Jesus Christ so that we can say and we can sing when we come together, yes, praise God, on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Through the obedience of the Son, through Jesus Christ, and for everyone, everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God is turned off of us and is turned on to Jesus because he drank the cup of God's wrath all the way to the dregs for us and for you. Friends, that message still gives me chills. I hope it does to you as well. Yes, God is holy. Yes, he, yes he, he hates sin. But he is so good and so loving that he has provided a way for that wrath to be turned away from me, away from you, and on to Jesus. And he did it at the cross. That song also says very powerful words that we need to remember during the crazy times that we're having to all try to navigate coming out of 2020, coming into 2021. No power of hell. No scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. We are secure in Christ. No, there, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. No pandemic, no pestilence, no uh, conflict, no financial ruin. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hands. Friends, that's enough. That is enough for us to cling on to as we march toward the uncertainties of, of 2021. But this morning, we're in James. We're in James chapter 1, verse 1. That's right, we're only going to talk about one verse. And so some of you might be tempted to think that means it's going to be a really short sermon. Well, I've got news for you. Not necessarily. Okay, But we are going to be looking at one verse, and it's a powerful verse. This is the verse that we're tempted, right? I don't know, it's, it's, this is January 3rd, right? 
Who, who has already fallen behind in their yearly Bible reading plan? Uh, maybe a few of us. But this is one of those verses as we're reading through the Bible. If you ever open up your Bible to the book of James, you might be tempted just to kind of skip over this part. Because this is just the intro, right? This is just uh, the opening credits to the movie. And we can kind of fast forward through this stuff. You know, I had a friend when I was growing up. And uh, I may have told you this. My friend's name was Matthew. And we would always watch these action movies together. And every time that there was talk going on, he just wanted to fast forward through the talk. Like, let's get to the action. Let's get to the good part, right? Well, friends, this is the action. Every single word is is packed with action. Every single word is good for us and is useful for us. We learn this in, in 2 Timothy. All of Scripture is breathed out from God and is useful for us. But uh, this morning, as we begin walking through James, we do so expectantly, right? We should do this expectantly, expecting God to use his word to change us. I don't know about you, but I need change. I need God to take me from where I am to where I need to be. Just like diamonds are created by pressure and time. As we continually come back here every Sunday morning, some of us on Sunday nights and on Wednesday nights, we're, as it were, we're saying to God, God, I want to submit myself to the pressure and the time of the scriptures. Just pressing in on me, making me more and more pure, making me more and more who I should be. Something about the pressure and the time of of the, the accumulation of God's word building up on top of our lives. It, it presses us into the image that God wants us to be. Um, I, Whitney and I have had conversations lately that goes something like this. Listen, if it's not going to snow, just go ahead and bring on spring, right? I'm done with the cold weather if it's going to be cold weather for no purpose, right? Cold weather with no snow is just not much fun. But one thing that I have learned about snow is, is, is the snowball effect uh, my uh, a few years ago, I was I was back home in North Carolina. We get we get you know a good deal of snow there sometimes, and um, and we were building a snowman with my nephews uh, or with my with my nephews and nieces. We were outside, and we decided that we wanted to have a, a really big base to this snowman. The problem is once you kind of if you start up at the top of the driveway or the top of the hill and start rolling this snowball, it can eventually get so big that you can't push it anymore. Well, because it just compacts and it grows and it gets bigger and the pressure and the time, it just starts to get so large that next thing you know, uh, you can't do anything more with it. Well, we are submitting ourselves to the Word of God. Every time we walk through a new book, we're saying, I want to see, I want the whole counsel of God's Word to do its work in me. And so that's why sometimes, every now and then, I have a little file in my office, and whenever I need to be encouraged about God's ability to do what he wants to do, I just kind of open up my file, and I, and I look at, at all these. This is, these are just the sermons from Philippians. But something about seeing it and feeling it and holding it and feeling the weight of it and looking through, I'm able to, to like remember and to be encouraged that God is going to use the pressure and the time that we put into coming here and getting underneath his word and allowing it to conform us and to press us into his image. God will do that work, friends, if you continue to place yourself under his word. We do a lot of talk about standing on God's word. We need to do some more talk about standing under it. 
and allowing it to do its work in us. So let's stand on God's word, Trenton Baptist, in 2021, but let's also stand under it and allow it to be the rule of faith. Uh, I'm excited about what God might do through James because James is so practical. If you've ever read through the book of James, through the letter of James, it has this way of getting down to brass tacks pretty quickly. Right? And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. As we submit ourselves to God's Word, as we submit ourselves to yet another book, to the book of James, there's going to be a possibility that because of how James is, that James is going to dig a knuckle right in that sore spot. He might put a knife right on that old wound or something, a little salt on the wound. There might be something that because it's good for us, it hurts a little bit. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. That whenever James digs into that tender spot. Whenever James knocks you off your block, just get up, wipe some dirt on it, and praise God that he's still interested in making you more like Jesus. Because God disciplines the one that he loves. You know the difference between, the difference between a stab wound and a surgery is the intention God intends to wound us every now and then for our good. Just like a surgeon with a scalpel. Not like some mugger with a, with a switchblade. God intends to cut us every now and then. Every now and then. But for our good. So if that happens in the book of James, if that happens to you, just say, Lord, I submit. I surrender to your word. Make me more like Jesus. Make me more like Jesus. I want to read this verse because it's actually very powerful. I don't want us to miss anything that's in here. Uh, it's important on this first sermon as we look to James to do a little background work because at the end of the day, as we read a book that was originally written to somebody else, it's almost like reading somebody else's mail. We need to get ourselves in the shoes of the people who first heard it before we can understand all that's going on. But we praise God. That even though this was written some 2,000 years ago, God is still using it to make us more like his son, Jesus. James chapter 1, verse 1, opens this way. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Let's pray. Lord, even when we just read one verse of your scriptures, we are reminded that even one verse is powerful. I'm reminded, God, of the time when Charles Spurgeon was in the sanctuary of his church in London. And he was testing out the acoustics of the room. And he simply said, not knowing that anybody else was in the building, he simply said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And somewhere in a back room, the janitor was listening. And he was brought under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And he became saved that day. Lord, your word is powerful. Help us not to have small thoughts of you or of your word. As we look to just one verse today, would you use it? Would you use it to make us who we need to be? We pray this. We ask. We beg. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So friends, we need to do a little background work. It's important to give a little background, as I said, because otherwise it'll seem like we're reading somebody else's mail. Who were the people 
that James was writing to. Who was James, after all? Well, uh, the first hearers of James were Jewish Christians living outside of Jerusalem. This is what it means when he says, to the twelve tribes. Okay, that's a, that's a reference to their Jewish heritage. Right, the twelve tribes of, of Israel. He says, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. You see, what had happened is that after Stephen gave his big speech that we all read in, in the book of Acts, there was some persecution in Jerusalem and in different parts of, of the Roman world. And, and the, the Jews were scattered uh, because they were having to flee. They were fearing for their life and for their safety. And so they were dispersed. This is what he means when he says to the twelve tribes who are in the dispersion. All the people who are scattered, you're not in the city that you ought to be in. Remember, as we're reading in Ezra and Nehemiah on, um, on Sunday nights. Uh, Jerusalem is a very important place, right? It's the, it's the center of, of worship for these Jewish people. Well, now they're no longer simply Jews. They're ethnic Jews who have become converted. They've, they've believed. They've trusted in Jesus. So these are Jewish Christians living outside Jerusalem. Acts 11, 19 says this. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So this helps us understand in later parts of James, when James is speaking, when he's speaking of the mistreatment of the poor. See, these are people who have been scattered from their homes. They're separated from all of their their family, all of their little social fabric that they have. They, they know the neighbors they can depend on. They know the, the shop owners that they can depend on. Well, now they're separated from all these people. They're in a different land. And now what's happening is other people are kind of taking advantage of them. And so later in James, we'll read about how, uh, about how the, those who are rich should not persecute those who are poor. And this means something very powerful for these people because they understand what it means to be poor and to be separated from everything that is familiar to them. We also hear about the twelve tribes, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. It has, it has to do, yes, with the Jewish people, but now in the New Testament, it's a word for the true people of God. The true people of God. In the Old Testament, the people of God were made up by Jewish people and God-fearers, those who followed Yahweh. In the New Testament, we learn in the book of Romans and in Galatians that a true Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly. In other words, everybody can get into Abraham's family. Everybody can get into the family of the people of God. How? Through faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ. And so in a sense, we are all now in the family of Abraham. We are all now, in a sense, Jews. Those of us who are believing in Jesus as the only hope of our salvation. So that's what he refers to here when he says to the twelve tribes of the dispersion. So in summary, I know this seems like a little bit of a lecture, but it's important for us to understand everything else that comes later. The first hearers of James were Christians who were ethnically Jewish. They were suffering for their faith. They had been scattered. And they had certain needs to understand the gospel and to apply it deeply. Right? I mean, there's nothing that makes you... There's nothing that makes you apply your faith like a little bit of persecution. Like things getting difficult. Like having to suffer for believing in Christ. Friends, we need to be ready to suffer for Christ. Because pressure, I believe, is coming. 
It's important for us to understand how valuable Jesus is so that we might be able to walk with him faithfully no matter what comes in the years ahead. But as Jewish people, coming from a tradition of laws and regulations, one of their challenges is not to confuse the teachings of man with the teachings of God. This is very important. But the book of James also gives us a healthy look at what a changed life looks like. That's why I have entitled this sermon, In Christ Alone. That's why we sing, In Christ Alone. Because it's in Christ alone that our lives are changed, that we find our new identity, that our lives have purpose, that we are able to live, as it says in the New Testament, no longer for self. Because there are only really two ways to live. There are only two ways to live. To live either for self or for Christ. And we think to ourselves, well, I'm actually not living for self. I'm, I'm living, for, living for my kids. Well, the problem is that it's like, a, it's like an oxbow you know, lake or, or a little river. A little, it, it always kind of comes back around to self. Anything outside of Christ, any plan of living for anything other than Christ ends up circling back. It's like a little roundabout back to, to self if we're not careful. In Christ alone we have purpose. In Christ alone we have our identity. James tells us about what a saving faith looks like. See, we're tempted to believe in this kind of what's been called easy believism, right? It's like, yeah, I, I got that down. I, I believed. I, I filled out a card. I, I walked an aisle. I, I prayed a prayer. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. James tells us what kind of faith saves. Because we know from the scriptures that not everyone who, who says to, to God at the end, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will be admitted into his kingdom. So it's not a mere confession. It's a, it's a changed heart and a changed life. A conversion, a regeneration, a being made alive through Christ. So what's the purpose of James? Why is James writing? Why is he writing to these people? Well, uh, these Jewish Christians were meeting in house churches in different areas. They were going through so much trial, it was important for them not to give in to the temptations of the world. It was important for them to remember the call to holiness. Um, and so, some of these people, if, if, we, if you ever read in a commentary, read some of the background of what was going on here in James, some people had heard bits and pieces of what Paul was teaching. And we all know what Paul's big thing is. Paul's big thing was salvation by faith. Justification by faith alone, right? And so some people had heard some bits and pieces, and they had kind of filled in the gaps with some other assumptions. They had thought, well, okay, so I, I see what Paul's getting at. He says grace through faith. It's all free grace. And, and they began to think to themselves, hey, this, this justification by faith stuff, this grace through faith alone, it's really nice. It means I don't need to live a changed life. I, I, I guess works don't matter at all. I like to sin. God likes to forgive. What's the big deal? They had heard bits and pieces of Paul. and They hadn't heard a, a whole picture of the gospel. And so James, as a good shepherd, as a helpful pastor, as it were, he steps in and says, no, no, let me, let me help you rightly divide the word. Let me help you rightly understand all of the Bible and all of what God has teaching. Because there are two ditches on either side of the gospel. If we think of the gospel as a road, there are two ditches. On one side is the ditch of legalism. Legalism is when we set up rules that are not in the Bible and we live by those rules and we think that we are good people because we have lived by the rules. 
License on the other ditch is thinking, hey, I guess because Jesus paid it all, I have a license to sin. Legalism places us in the position of God by we get to set up new rules that are not in the Bible. License is where we place ourselves in the position of God by saying we get to make up the rules. There are no rules. So these are the two ditches that the people that James is writing to, these are the two ditches that they're having to, to stay out of, right? They're trying to walk on the narrow road of the gospel. So in summary, James is a call to holiness, to allowing the gospel to spill over into a new way of life and new works. And so at this point, I just want to read our verse one more time as we, as we pivot a little bit and look to James himself and his identity. How does James understand himself? He says this, James, a servant. Perhaps you remember from our time in Philippians that the same word in the Greek language for servant is the word for slave. The ESV here translates it servant. Perhaps your copy of God's Word translates it bond slave, bond servant. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, James himself is a case study in what happens when God saves you. He gives you a new set of desires. He, he messes up your categories. He, he gives you a new set of, of, of identities even and, and a new set of goals. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of attitude is produced when you come to know Christ? What kind of identity is produced when you come to know Christ. Friends, this is why this is so important. Because you know who James is, don't you? James is the half-brother of Jesus. James is the very half-brother of Jesus. And he introduces himself, how? Not by saying, hey, I'm James. I'm the half-brother of Jesus. Y'all need to respect me. No. No, he says, James, a servant. He says, I'm a slave. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be easy, wouldn't it, for James to pull rank? It would be easy, wouldn't it, for James to say, hey, y'all need to pay attention to me because of who I am by blood. But for James, that's not important. Identity, his identity as being in Christ alone is the only thing that matters to James. In Christ alone, his hope is found. When I was a kid, I felt like my dad was probably like the most famous guy in the world. It seemed like I would drive in his truck around. We would go around from here to there. Everybody, wherever we went, down to the fire department, people would be calling me Little Wally. My dad's name is Walter, right? We'd, we'd go up to the gas station. People would throw their hands up. What do you say, Walt? I thought my dad was probably the most famous man in the world. It never occurred to me in my little mind that all of our driving around was just in humble little Boonville there, you know, one stoplight. Um, but I came to know very early what my identity was. I was Walter's son, right? I had, I was a member of a family. I was a member of a tight-knit Town. I was, I was part of a church. 
I had an identity. Friends, how we understand ourselves, how we see ourselves, what we think our identity is, it determines so much, so much of our lives. How do you see yourself? How do you desire other people to see yourself? What we place our identity in determines everything about our lives. We'll either have some kind of vision of of some kind of identity that we want, or we will submit our identity to Christ. Those are really the only two options. James's identity is in Christ alone. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul mentions James by name. He says this, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, and I remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And so Paul himself calls James an apostle. It would have been easy for James to place his identity in his blood. It would have been easy for James to place his identity in his pedigree. Right, to try to sell access to his brother, right? To be the guy who says, hey, I know a guy. To be the guy who name drops. Nobody likes the guy who name drops, right? But James seems uninterested. He's completely disinterested in any claim to fame other than knowing Jesus as Lord. That's where his identity is. James didn't promote his pedigree. He didn't tell folks that his physical relationship to Jesus mattered. He knew that all, his, that, all that mattered was his spiritual relationship to Jesus, not his physical one. So here's, here's how we apply this. Friends, if we plant our flag, if we plant our flag on the soil of any other identity, it's worthless. We aren't justified by being in the right family. We aren't justified by being a member of the right church. We aren't justified by being of the right race or being citizens of the right country. We aren't justified by having a relative who's a pastor or somebody who once shook hands with Billy Graham. We aren't justified by anything other than faith in Christ alone and the kind of faith that overflows to a changed life. We are justified by faith alone. If this was good enough for James, the very half-brother of Jesus, and he's not going to boast in anything other than the fact that he has come to know Jesus as Lord, then that should be our only ground of boasting as well. Further, we should be careful about where we find our identity and worth. You see, today, our culture is filled with opportunities to create kind of these designer Designer identities. We can put an image of ourselves out on social media that's completely manufactured, that's totally fake. You can try to find your identity in your occupation, but what if that gets taken from you? You can try to find your identity in, in an image, but what if people don't care? You can try to find your identity in your income, but is it, is it recession-proof? Is it disability-proof? Is it pandemic-proof? You can try to find your identity in your good deeds, but the Bible says that even your good deeds are filthy rags. At some point, you'll fail, and your holier-than-thou self will look foolish because you weren't able to even live up to your own standard. We can try to find our identity in a a relationship status or, or another person, but to do that, we'd be asking a significant other, a boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, husband, to bear a weight that they can't possibly bear. We need to be captivated instead, church. We need to be captivated by a single identity. 
And that identity is in Christ alone. That identity is what Paul mentions when he says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, the old me is dead. The lights are on, but nobody's home. The old me is gone. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, I pray that that message has captivated you. I pray that it doesn't seem ho-hum. I pray that it doesn't seem to you like eh. I pray that it seems to you like the very power of God. Because it's the only thing that matters. It's the only identity that brings peace and purpose. Secondly, I want to ask you to look at the humility of James. We just looked at his identity. But look at his humility. Humility, by the way, isn't... Humility, uh, the, the stock value on humility isn't exactly rising these days. I don't know if you've noticed, but pe- people don't want a humble person to lead them to, to be their role model. Pe- people want, a, people want a, a loud mouth sometimes. People want a fighter. People want somebody who you, you punch him, he's going to punch back twice as hard. But look at the humility of James. The humility that was brought out of a changed life. He says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So all jokes aside about how difficult it must be, how difficult it is for siblings to get along, right? Imagine James growing up with Jesus, right? He's the brother that's always perfect, the brother that always does everything right. So all jokes about that stuff aside, imagine growing up with Jesus, thinking of him as your brother, not maybe not recognizing him as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world, but then one day the eyes of your heart are opened. You see him for who he is. You surrender to him as Lord. Imagine the kind of change that that must bring. It creates Humility, Friends, and it does the same in us. Perhaps there was a time. Perhaps there was a time when you looked on Jesus and he just kind of seemed like this weak, mealy-mouthed man that you didn't want to be anything like. But then you had an encounter with him. And he messed you up. And you were able to one day recognize him as the Lord of the universe. As the only one who deserved your attention and your glory and your time and your praise. When you're in the presence of the Lord, humility is the only proper attitude. It's the only proper attitude. James is a case study in this. He he shows us that, that that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. I know that's an old saying, but it's true. At the the feet of Jesus, no one is ahead of anyone else, even the very half-brother of Jesus. No one is, is ahead of one another. All must come to him in humility and in faith. It doesn't matter if, if your grandfather was a pastor like mine. It doesn't matter if you were the charter member of some church somewhere. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what have you done with Jesus. That's what the Bible says about humility. It says this, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty, the proud, prideful, he knows them 
from afar. In other words, he knows who you are if you're proud, if you're haughty, if you're arrogant. He knows who you are, trust me, but he knows you from a distance. But the one who is lowly, the one who's humble, he knows you close up. That's how I take this. Matthew 23, it says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then in James chapter 4, a few chapters later, after what we're reading today, James himself says, But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. That's what it says in the Old Testament. is what James James reiterates in James chapter 4. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So friends, I'll just ask you this question. Has God humbled you? Can you think back to a time in your life when God has knocked you off your block, has gotten your attention, has shown you who He is, and has called you to Himself? Has there been a time when God has humbled you? Or are you still the king of your life? Are you still the master of your ship? Are you still the captain of your own fate? When you see God for who He is, when we see God for who He is, it humbles us. It knocks us off of our horse. We no longer want to live for self. We want to live, we want to live for Him who for our sake died and was raised. The Bible said God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Has God humbled you? If He hasn't, if He hasn't, I want to read to you a couple words of an old hymn. It says this, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness God requires is to feel your need of Him. Has God humbled you? Do you feel your need for a Savior? I would say this to you. If today, for the first time, the gospel, God's message of, of the wrath of God being turned away from you and put on to Jesus, if that message today for the first time has seemed good to you, if it has seemed sweet, if it has seemed like inside of your heart, your heart is just crying out, I want that, I need that, I must have that, I believe it's because God has saved you where you sit. You've come to believe the gospel. And if you have today come to believe the gospel for the first time through through looking at the life of James, through hearing Galatians 2.20, from hearing that message of God's wrath, which should have been poured out on you, being diverted and poured out on Jesus. If today, for the first time, you have believed that message, I want you to come tell me about it. I'm going to pray. I would ask you to stand as I pray. And let's respond to God's Word. Lord, thank you. Thank you for what... You've done through your word. Thank you for what you've provided through your word. I pray that today we would not turn away from it. 
I pray that if you have been doing ministry in a heart today, I pray that that person would not harden their heart and turn away from your work, but that they would respond to it, that they would confess you as Lord today. I pray that that for the believers in the room, that we would look to James and we would say, you know what, I see in James a man who's humble. I see in James a man that I need to be more like. I need to not trust in my own works. I need to I need to throw all of that aside and pursue Christ alone. Lord, help me not to be a prideful Christian. Help me to be humble. But Lord, I pray for the one today who perhaps for the very first time has come to believe that Jesus is the only hope, the only good identity the only means of God's wrath being taken off of me and being put on to someone else. Jesus is the true and better Savior. I pray that if that person today has believed, they would come and tell me and make it public. I pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.